Welcome to the Heroes of Reality podcast, a podcast about the game of life and the hero's journey we all experience. Let's jump in with our host, Dylan Watkins, as he introduces today's guest. Welcome, adventurers. On today's podcast, I have Dr. Shauna Pandya. She is a Canadian physician, scientist, astronaut, candidate, program graduate with the International Institute for the Astro- Astronautical Sciences, the IIAS, and Project Possum, aquanaut, speaker, martial artist, advanced diver, skydiver, pilot in training, and VP of Immersive Medicine with Lasonic Technologies and fellow at the Explorers Club. So without any delay, I'd like to welcome Dr. Shauna Pandya. Hi, Dylan. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you on here. And I'm so excited to learn about your journey. In terms of Explorer, you definitely like, I, you know, waving flag of Explorer of all the different things that you've done. Can you talk to me first a little bit about the Explorers Club? And then I want to back into how you got how you got on this, this wild journey. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So um, the Explorers Club is exactly what it sounds like. It's, you know, it's been around for um, at least 100 years. And it's, you know, people who are interested in pushing the boundaries, um, going where humans hadn't gone before, or studying things um, that hadn't been studied before in these locales. And that's an important distinction. Um, So to be a member of the Explorers Club, um, you either come in as a fellow or a member. And it's not that just you you visit these places, um, because that's, that's tourism. But what have you done to increase our num of that area? What have you published? Um, and so I, I was lucky enough to be inducted into the Explorers Club as a fellow um, based on my research and publications in the space um, and astronautics world. And, you know, the people you meet are incredible. You know, you can be at a single table and someone will have done a paleontological um, dig in South America. Someone will have been at the South Pole. Um, you know, someone will be talking about what they're working on in space research, someone will have been caving. And, you know, it's 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 just inspiration um, of what what is out there, what people are working on, and, you know, might spark the next expedition that um, we yeah, decide to embark upon. Oh, uh, that's so cool. That's so cool. Yeah, the, I mean, it's it sounds like, you know, the the place that you've always wanted to go, like, it's it's like, it's what I imagine as a kid, is behind the room behind the corner is the place where you know all the cool people are hanging out like all of the adults that are having a great time without you because you're too young to have an adventures i i think it's a that sounds like a, a wonderful club to be part of and the stories that are probably told are incredible um have you always been an explorer or what was the genesis that kicked you off into like getting into this space yeah, that's a great question. I was always a really ambitious kid. And I think I like to joke that maybe I just became progressively less ambitious um, as I grew up. And so the story goes that, you know, when I was a four year old, I wanted to be a transformer and fight crime. And then I realized, well, I'm not a robot. So, okay, that kind of that plan. So then I thought, okay, I'll be a superhero. And then I realized, okay, well, that's not like there's no superhero school you can go to. So then I thought, okay, let me become a billionaire. So by this time I'd grown up a little, I was, I was seven years old and I thought, let me use my world, my wealth to solve all the world's problems. And then I realized, okay, well, there's no degree in billionaireology. So what's the next boundary pushing, next most amazing thing? And I thought, okay, I want to be an astronaut. 
Um, and, you know, I grew up in the 90s. I grew up mm. when the second ever Canadian astronaut selection was taking place. I'm a Canadian um, by, by background. This is where I grew up. And then I also was inspired by the first female ast Canadian astronaut, Dr. Roberta Bondar in space. And I thought, okay, that's it. That's my path. Um, she's Canadian. I'm Canadian. She's female. I'm female. So now all I need to do is go be a neuroscientist, physician, and astronaut. Boom, it's done. And that's actually literally what set me on the path towards studying my degree in neuroscience, going to medical school, and then merging space and space medicine in my career along the way. Wow. I like how you're like, oh, I just need to. It's a very... It's a, it's a simple sentence that's backed by years, if not decades, of hard work along the I way. I played the long game, yeah, as a kid. It's sort of like, okay, just these three things, no big deal. <laughs> that's it, no big deal. Uh, when, what's, what's awesome about that, too, is like, so how old were you when you found about her? I mean, can you say her name again? Dr. Roberta Bonder. Roberta Bonder. And how old were you when you, when you, saw, when you came across her materials and knew what she was about? So this was early 90s, so I would have been about eight um, at that point. And then, you know, from there it was game on. It's like, okay, well, this is exciting. People go into space. And, you know, the other part of that was kind of having the hands-on experience to back it up. So um, Dr. Bonder was a girl guide, and I was also a girl guide. I did lots of camping, lots of survival camps throughout our education um, in junior high. I did a lot of camping with my family. And the coolest part of that is you get to see all of these amazing night skies where you're away from the city lights and these you know glittering stars just leap out at you and you're like wow i want to be amongst those you know people go there and you know that really also helps solidify that holy cow something amazing you know that's something amazing to work towards a hundred percent and there, there's something about when you when you get out into the wild and you connect with nature you kind of you kind of feel both connected and super small you have those combinations of, of that stuff. I had, I just recently got, it was like two, three months ago. I got to go to the Keck observatory in Hawaii. Oh, um, amazing. Yeah. Okay. Old moon, uh, new moon, right up at the top. And then like, so I've, I've got these photos that are just, you just look at it and you're like, wow, it just, you don't really understand how grand the universe is until you can actually get a clear view of it. That will like, it changes. And I, yeah. I think, and, and I don't know if this is right, because I'm not a neuroscientist, but I have a, a thought about this. I'd love to run across you called, what is awe? What is awe? And my, this is just my own personal interpretation of awe that I kind of came across was whenever you, whenever a computer is trying to run graphics on a computer, you have this, it's rendering, it's running the graphics as a visual, right? And I think, um, at least visually speaking, like when you go from like a little tunnel and then you go into like the Yosemite mountains, you look at all that beauty or you come out underneath like a camp and you look at all that grant, you look at the sky and you see the thousands and you know, millions and millions of stars, your brain's trying to process all that beauty at one time. And your brain goes, ah, you're just like overwhelmed at that sensations. And so I think, I think awe is a rendering issue. I could be completely off point, but I don't, I want to get your takes on it as an actual neuroscientist. I would be really curious to see, you know, if you could um, image someone's brain in real time, if you could perform a fMRI, like a, a functional MRI of someone's brain and see what parts of the brain light up, you know, when they're mm -hmm. experiencing that awe, that would be really cool. And, you know, also track which neurotransmitters are um, uh, involved with that, because we know, for example, um, there's there's reward um, transmitters, neurotransmitters like dopamine, there's, there's pleasure. Um, uh, neurotransmitters as well, and it would be kind of cool to see what the excitation pathways are doing when you when you're looking at something that's awe-inspiring. That would be a cool study. 
I would be yeah, super curious. What a great one to be a part of. You're just constantly getting your mind blown as an experiment, you know. Science yeah, of awe, hey. <laughs> yeah. Incredible. So I mean, so I love this, and I love the fact that because you you had a moment where you had a model, and yeah, and and the model was like, okay, I want to be like her, uh, scientist, astronaut, like a crazy, and then you, you started modeling that behavior, and then you started exploring the wilds, and you started feeling that love and that passion. Um, along the way, can you talk to me about your 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 journey through there and and getting the degrees and everything that you're going, um, you know, along the path, um, going through these journeys and actually leveling up. Um, I saw like you 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 have a combination of of both nature and high technologies. You know what what is the commonality between all of these things that you that that keeps your interests? Yeah, you know, I think it's always about pushing the limits, um, whether you're, you know, climbing up a, a mountain in a Mars simulation when you're at the Mars Desert Research Station and you're climbing these amazing sprawling vistas, you, you're living real life on fake Mars, you're, you're pretty much may as well be living on Mars. Um, and, you know, myself, when we were living in that simulation, myself and my EVA or exploration buddy, um, we would just climb the highest peaks. So we could be, you know, if we didn't do that, if we didn't push our own limits, we wouldn't know the paths that lay to be explored next. And it's the same reason we perform research. It's the same reason that we develop new technologies, because it's sort of, where can I go with this? And I think that's the common thread that links the two. Mm. So it's pushing the limits, the discovery, but it's not also discovering the world, but also discovering yourself. And it's yeah, and also saying, where can I go next with this? What if, what if I did this? What if, you know, I found this out? What could I do with that knowledge? Can you talk to me about a time where it might have been a challenge for you to try to overcome something, but then by pushing through, you got the reward? Because what you're saying, pushing through the limits is is a is a wonderful thing. But how did that how did that get hard coded into your psyche? Oh gosh, um, that's a great question. I would say that I think that's kind of one of my innate traits. It's not that I'm smarter or talented than anyone else. I think I just don't give up. I've had a certain stick to itiveness. Um, ever since I was a kid. And, you know, I would also have ambition to back that up. You know, when I was 10, I would sat down and made a list of things that I had yet to do in my life. And, uh, you know, the things I wanted to achieve. Um, and, you know, for example, one of those was um, getting a black belt in something. And then by the time I was 15, I was like, hey, I haven't done anything with that. Time to, you know, pick up the pace. And then that's when I joined Taekwondo. Um, and, you know, and one of the core tenets of Taekwondo is is that um, indomitable spirit of always picking yourself back up of, you know, you can get knocked down eight, time, uh, eight times, but you better get up nine, right? So um, mm -hmm. I think it's it was a part of um, something that I that was always innate in, um, uh, to me and then that was reinforced through various life experiences like martial arts. So you were making a list as a kid of the things you haven't done yet. And you're like, hey, man, time's a ticking. I got to get on the ball here. I'm, I'm slipping. I'm not I'm not an astronaut yet. I got I got to get ahead of things or a black belt yet in these situations, uh, which is unusual and awesome. Uh, <laughs> with with that and you're looking at that, um, there's got to be time because a lot of this is involving a lot of delayed gratification. You know, because it's it's one thing to say, oh, I I mean, there's a lot of young uh, boys and girls who are like, oh, I want to be an astronaut. But that path is not, you know, you talk about this. I'm playing the long game. Right. You talk about you being able to push through the limits and being able to actually have that. Can you talk to me about kind of what is what is the mindset that happens for you to be able to endure past the point of just the, when the novelty of the idea wears off? 
Yeah, that's a that's a two-pronged question, I think, and it's a really good one. I think the first part of that is when you're in medicine, playing the long game is really ingrained into you because it's really interesting to see how far everyone who's in grade 12 has good grades like science is told to go into medicine. At least that's the way it was when I was growing up to, and then I'm going to go be a cardiovascular surgeon to, I don't have to do med school or, you know, I don't need to be a subspecialist surgeon. Um, you know, that, that resilience really gets tested as you go through years and years of schooling. Um, so that's the one part of it. And then the other part of it is, you know, you couldn't do this um, whether it's pursuing astronautics, whether it's pursuing medicine, if you didn't love the the grind in between. And it's not always fun. Um, I know that some of our military friends um, say embrace the suck. And sometimes you have to, you know, sometimes you have to embrace, you know, the the hard days, um, you know, whether you're when you're a medical student and you've been up for 30 hours straight and, you know, you're at the bottom of the totem pole. Um, but the other part of it is, loving um you know the exploration and the discovery that comes with have doing hard things and with the space world you know every single thing that i do whether it's going um for a pilot's license or a skydiving license or ex uh, uh, organizing an expedition to the bottom of um the sea and living there and as aquanauts you know that's you love that stuff you love the teammates you work with you you're surrounded by amazing people um, and, you know, at the end of the day, if um, you're not enjoying that journey at every step of the way, um, then maybe it's time to to recalibrate and say, is this kind of where we uh, uh, There's uh, several questions popped up in my head um, when, you, when you were saying that. Uh, living at the bottom, uh, have you lived at the bottom of the sea? Yeah, so um, I got my Aquanaut um, designation on the 2019 Neptune mission. So this, uh, in everything, as I'm sure your your listeners are learning, everything in space and medicine and exploration is acronym. Um, and Neptune stands for Nautical Experiments in Physiology, Technology, and Underwater Exploration. And so um, when I say bottom of the sea, we lived 20 mm. feet underwater in a habitat. So yeah. not, you know, at the Marianas Trench, uh, that would be a little bit different. But we were still in saturation for the period of those um, five days. And we um, didn't surface till um, day five of that mission. And we lived and worked as a remote crew. We performed science related to um, physiology, psychology. We tested VR underwater. We tested VR medical suites underwater and, you know, did remote um, teleconsultations with uh, physicians in Canada. It was it was a blast. It was so much fun. That sounds awesome. Um, kind of sounds like a like a vacation a little bit. Like a, it sounds <laughs> like an it sounds like an, a, a unique destination on on Airbnb. Um, personally, um, uh, with a bunch of awesome science work in terms of the VR, because I'm a I, I'm a VR developer and I build and design things like that. What what were you testing out like in in the in, in terms of like underwater uh, virtual reality applications? Like, can you talk me through a little bit of that? Yeah, that's, um, this is kind of the origin story of one of the things you mentioned in my bio. So you mentioned I'm the VP of Immersive Medicine with Luxonic Technologies, and this was the, like, the whole um, origin story. So um, when we were reaching out to collaborators and co-investigators um, to see what kind of science and what kind of technologies we could test on um, this Aquanaut mission, um, we talked to the CEO of Luxonic, and they had... Um, the world's only virtual reality-based radiology um, reading room. And so, as you can imagine, in an austere, remote, rural 
um, isolated environments, whether you're talking about a remote town in Canada or whether you're talking about space, being able to have, you know, this portable reading room where you don't need this $30,000 setup with high resolution monitors um, to go through your diagnostic imaging is incredibly useful. And then if the if you're able to collaborate with a specialist to review um, complicated imaging, so much the better. And so I was the crew medical officer on that Aquanaut mission. And um, what I did was I actually met with the head of radiology in Saskatoon, Canada, um, in this collaborative virtual reality space, 4,600 kilometers of distance between us, but we were still able to review the simulated, um, the imaging of a simulated trauma patient. And the whole mm -hmm. idea was, using that proof of concept, we were able to say, well, hey, maybe this also has applications for astronauts on the space station or on the moon um, where there is a time delay, but it's only two seconds. And so that was the start of it. And then actually we managed to take that same headset and that same um, uh, virtual reality radiology room. Um, so we call it Sievert. We were able to take that on parabolic flight on the Vomit Comet a week later and fly it in zero G. Um, so it was, it was a really, awesome week and then coming back to the origin story of how i got into medicine and vr and you know mm -hmm. using um immersive technologies for education and austere environments um that was the beginning of my introduction to the company and i came on board since to help further develop this and other technology suites for exactly this type of user whether it's someone in COVID, covid who doesn't have access to their traditional physical learning space or whether it's an astronaut in space who needs to practice medical procedures in vr yeah, that's great. And you're right. Uh, the use cases for virtual reality are things that are generally when you're talking about training is things that are rare, things that are risky, things that are expensive, things that are dangerous, um, which is which basically involves everything up in space, you know, and everything below the water, because all that stuff is either it's, it's rare, it's risky, it's dangerous, it's edge cases, um, which is a wonderful use case. So then what you're allowing people to do is you can have that remote collaboration so that you can you can see what's going on with the the x-rays and then I, you're talking about getting uh virtually trained to do surgeries um which i think is not gonna it's not gonna be as good as as doing it in person but way better than a book way better than trying to read about a surgery and trying to perform it versus actually seeing it and that kind of stuff I, so i think it's some 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 awesome awesome use cases and are you so so then the roadmap for that is to, is to kind of enable people with a suite of tools to say hey you're in a you're in a unique location. Use this to be able to um, uh, solve a complex medical situation. Is that what that is for? Yeah. And so, so to clarify, we don't focus on surgery because there's other groups out there doing that. We focus on mm -hmm. other procedures. So imagine that you, for example, going back to the space case, imagine that you are the crew medical officer and you first learned to put an IV um, in on earth. And then the next time you're called upon to use that skill is six months later. If you haven't practiced it, you're going to make your poor patient look like a pin cushion. So imagine you're able to build that muscle memory in VR and the exact it's exactly what you said. You get to retire that risk um, by not practicing on a patient. Um, you get to, you know, practice the steps of that procedure. Um, you get to review how you did on that procedure. And then we also have data saying that there's actually cost savings, better memory retention, um, better learner confidence when you're using immersive. So there's um, the science to back it up. That's awesome. That's awesome. Is is there anything you haven't done yet that's still on your bucket list? 
You know, every day with how amazing this planet is, with how many new discoveries we make, with how many technologies are out there, the bucket list just grows. Um, so definitely going to space is um, next on my bucket list. I absolutely want to go. I want to go there as a scientist. I want to go there to make um, a lasting contribution to our body of knowledge when it comes to exploration and research. Um, but the more, you know, the more I become part of the exploration world, there's so much on Earth as well that I want to do. And my love of ocean exploration really grew during that astronaut mission. Um, I was also lucky to go down to Aquarius Space, which is another underwater research lab. Um, this is where NASA runs its NEMO mission, so NASA Extreme Environment Missions Operations. It's also, these both of these places are in the Florida Keys. Um, the Aquarius Reef Base is 13 miles from the place we did our aquanaut mission at the Jewels Undersea Lodge. Um, and, you know, going through these these um, these these sojourns, these, these visits mm -hmm. to these incredible places, you know, you learn about um, both how vast and amazing our oceans are to the fact that blows my mind is to date we've only mapped 5% of the oceans. 95% remains unmapped and we know more about the surface of the moon <laughs> than we do about the you know the the what's our oceans contain we know that yeah. we're discovering new species all the time we know that they look like aliens if you ever see like a rainbow octopus holy cow they're they're aliens and they're here on earth they're amazing um, but we also know that we have a duty to conserve these environments because they're so critical to the health of our planet we know that we're in a climate crisis um, and we know things like coral reefs are often the first signals to hey our oceans are in danger um so that you know coming back to that bucket list um mm -hmm. continued exploration uh ocean exploration and then definitely polar exploration i haven't been down to either pole yet so that would be fun yeah, <laughs> yeah uh i i haven't gotten to that i got to go to the uh it's called end of the world ushuaia yeah, don't you familiar mm -hmm. with that? It's like it's like no. right before there. Oh yeah, I I was I have a friend of mine who does like wild survivals. I was, I was on a German TV show and we got to go down to like what's called uh, end of the world, which is the last yeah. last airport right before Antarctica. Um, and so it was right down there, and uh, it was amazing because you, it was there's a place called Ushuaia because it's called and um, it's the last spot and there's like a little explorer's lodge that we we're in from like the 18 1900s where you could tell it's where everyone would like pack up and do things and kind of like you know and we were hanging out it was like it was like original i was like wow i could imagine all the original explorers that were coming here that were trying to survive and make things happen and and we feel so you know, we are very lucky right now with the technologies that we have that we can map things, right? We can go onto Google Earth and we can look at things, we can check things out. I can go to Tokyo and go run around as Google Maps and things, things versus like old school explorers. Um, they were cutting through the forest, trying to find the ways and trying to uncover, you know, what's this? Can I eat it? Will it kill me? I don't know. There's all these unique things. And that, and that still, it feels really mapped right now, but you're right. We only got 5% of the ocean that we still got to go through and wade through and and those types of things um when you're talking about when you're talking about ex exploring and you said the last place you want to go up into um, or on your bucket list is in this space what's the likelihood in terms of the the elon musk mars mission going to mars like what at what point would you feel comfortable going to mars or would you ever feel comfortable going to mars to explore Absolutely. Um, I'm always happy to go to any place you want to send me to as long as you show me you have a plan that you've identified the risks, you have a plan to get me back. 
um, and that you have a plan to, you know, not only identify, but mitigate the risks. So right now we know that um, space is trying to kill us. Mars is trying to kill us. It's it's a combination of you know decompensation and deconditioning in microgravity. Um, it's the lunar dust that the Apollo astronauts uh, encountered on the moon. It's the increased radiation. It's the psychology of loneliness. It's um, having altered day night cycles. Um, you know, on the ISS, you're going through sunset sunrise cycle every 90 minutes. Right? There's a lot to contend with. Um, and then, you know, when you're on Mars, you're six to nine months away from the nearest hospital. So you also have to contend with that. So there's a lot that's trying to kill you up in space. Um, and so if you're proposing to send me or anyone to a place, you better have a plan to um, mitigate all of those risks as well as bring me back. It's, just, it's, it's not like, uh, well, it's going to roll the dice. Look, it's just we're going to roll the dice. We'll figure it out. It'll be OK. Uh, no. <laughs> you know, this, well, this, yeah, go ahead. Well, like, and, and that's a question. Well, I, when you talk about that, I'm actually really curious from your when, from your perspective on, you said get a plan. So uh, my guess is since you're, since you are uh, constantly going to the wild, what would be like like you, you talk about making a plan? If you're going to form like going into an unknown area, and you're talking about mitigating risk, if you're if people are going to be doing these uh, explorer type adventure things, what how how do they prep up to go into the adventure? Yeah, absolutely. So um, what I was going to say is um, there's a couple of famous quotes from some of the astronauts is that, you know, Chris Hadfield has famously said, you know, no astronaut goes into a launch with their fingers crossing. I hope this is going to be okay. And then David Saint-Jacques, another Canadian astronaut, has said, astronauts are famously chicken. We, we, they, they, we shy away from risk, right? And so it's the same thing if you're going into an austere environment. You want to know, first of all, what are the hazards of this environment? Um, what is going to kill you? What's most likely to kill you? How do I retire that risk? How do I pack for that risk? And what are my packing constraints, right? So, you know, if you're, whether you're talking about going to the moon or whether you're talking about going on a jungle expedition, well, in a jungle, it's gonna be, you know, the heat, it's gonna be poisonous insects, it's gonna be venomous plants um, that, that come after you. But you also need to worry about, you know, the Maslow's hierarchy of survival, like the, the food, water, shelter, right? Um, and then how are, what are your constraints? Do you have a pack animal that's going to carry your stuff for you? Or is it everything that you bring with you on your back? Um, and if that's the case, you know, knowing that maybe despite being this environment where heat is still an issue is the most likely thing you're going to encounter still blisters, right? And then that helps you um, formulate an approach and a plan as to how you're going to put, what you're going to put into your medical kit. So it might be, you know, um, uh, extra rations, it might be um, painkillers, it might be blister um, uh, band-aids, and then it may be a rare antidote in case you encounter a venomous caterpillar, uh, right? And so you'll have an approach. So that's the first part of it. And then the second part of it is what are your contingencies? You know, what's your plan A, B, C, D, E? How are you going to evac? Are you going to carry a sat phone with you? Um, all of these things are, you know, you should be thinking about that at every step of the way, whether, you know, whether you're going underwater to live and work for five days, whether you're going to the remote jungle, whether you're going to space. And, you know, that's exactly the approach that we took towards our, our Neptune mission. We had spreadsheets upon spreadsheets that we worked upon, you know, for the better part of a year to help the, get this mission, um, uh, kick it off and well. Wow. So we're talking spreadsheets because what I'm imagining is, and this, this design process of actually coming across these, yeah, but yeah, okay, what's the scenario? Okay, what are the highest risks? Okay, how do we mitigate those risks in order? 
Um, how, what are the constraints that we can have? How, wh what can we bring with us? You know, what's our inventory? What does that look like? And then what I'm imagining you, you're doing um, is you're talking about spreadsheets. Are you thinking on spreadsheets or do you like get like whiteboards up and you design it? Okay, we go into the jungles, um, you know, a lion comes in, what do I do? Like, how do you, is it, is it literally just break down spreadsheets and scenarios inside spreadsheets? Is that what that looks like? Or is there another method for thinking on paper? Yeah, every every team is different. You know, it's really how your team comes together and performs best. For us, we would have regular team meetings and then we would take notes and then we would assign tasks and then we would say, okay, this is what the day-to-day -day schedule looks like. This is what the lead up looks like. This is who's arriving when. This is everyone's medical um, conditions to be aware of, such as allergies. You know, there were there were lots of spreadsheets related to that. And it's just the the end goal is you want to be prepared. You want to identify your unknowns and you also want to start identifying blind spots that you might not even think of as unknowns and the idea is you want to mitigate risk and it's really interesting because um, for example if there's anyone who's an engineer um, or technical um, background out there the way NASA approaches risk is through their risk matrix and they actually have this um, table where on one axis you identify um, the likelihood of something occurring mm -hmm. versus the consequence of something happening and if it's very likely and very severe consequence, like it's mission ending, if it happens, then you have to mitigate it before it goes on. So there's multiple models in which you would approach risk mitigation and planning. Um, and it, it's just what works best for you, as well as your team, as well as your mission and objectives. Mm. Uh, when you're going on these adventures, um, I am, I'm sure there's a better term for that, but when you're going out into exploring, um, you know, I'm sure it can go from very fun to very dangerous very quickly. Can you talk to me about a time uh, that you might have been, uh, you felt like your life was threatened, seemingly so or not? Um, you know, I think the biggest lesson that I've learned both from being a crew medical officer and being a commander is read the room. You know, your your level of comfort with risk may not always be everyone's level of comfort and risk. Um, and so, for example, there have been situations where, you know, someone was close to hyperventilating or being claustrophobic. And then, you know, myself and the other physician would look at and say, hey, we're actually seeing you're calming down. We're okay with continuing. We don't need to abort. We don't need to head back to base. Um, and then, you know, we're happy to continue on, you know, we're seeing that their vital signs are fine. And then in the debrief afterwards, you know, someone actually has to spell it out for us saying that just because you guys are comfortable with it, because you guys are seeing people dying in the emergency room all the time, you see people who are sick, doesn't mean that that's normal, you know, and it's not necessarily what the entire team is comfortable with. And that was, you know, that was a really um, honest and important lesson to, mm. to learn. Um, and in that position, um, you know, being a, a physician and a commander, it's sort of a very humbling because you have to be very, very team-based and team-oriented. And um, I think that's something that I've taken away with me from my austere environment um, expeditions. Well, I mean, in that situation where you have to lead people and you have to guide them through a through a situation where maybe they don't feel necessarily comfortable, right? I mean, is it is it a thing where it's you you can you're talking about reading the room, but one is there is a perceived danger and then there's actual danger right there's people that are just uh, they're concerned because they're concerned um but it's, it's not actually i don't say valid but it's not actually uh, they're, they're, the the risk isn't really there have you had to have a situation where you've had to rally the troops with uh something inspirational or some sort of way where you you do have to get the team to do something that they don't necessarily want to do but it's for the best of the mission 
Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're, you know, everyone, every mission's different. Every, the, the personalities that come to every mission um, is different. And, you know, I've been on expeditions where, you know, everyone is type AAA and, you know, your challenge is kind of holding them back. So they have enough left in the tank to go for the next day and the day after that. And, you know, um, on some missions, we've called that the sled dog mentality because we're just happiest when we're working really hard. Um, you know, and I've been on expeditions when um, people, um, may have done better with better preparation or may have said, oh, hey, I have a history of claustrophobia and not doing well with uh, tight confines and small groups. And you're thinking to yourself, why are you here? Um, and then, you know, just trying to um, realize, well, we're here now. We can't do anything about it other than make you as comfortable as possible, push you to your, to your limit a little bit, but also back down when, you know, you're saying, um, that you've had enough and it's really the the psychological aspect is not to be underestimated because even the perceived danger you know can lead to a full-blown panic attack it can have an impact on crew morale and if you're two days into your mission and you know you're you're being perceived as not taking your crew seriously well then it's just going to make for a miserable mission you're going to lose respect um no one's going to listen to you and so you know you really have to be evolving at all times and if you're in a position of leadership you really have to be humble and open about your mistakes because um, otherwise, you know, people, your, your mistakes are on display for all to see. And if you're not being honest about it, it's apparent. Um, and then you're really going to lose faith when you really need the trust of your team. Yeah. Is there, uh, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, because it's, it's a balance between, uh, it's like, a, it's not black or white. It's not, you know, hammer or something else. It's, it's, it's finding that, that balance and knowing the nuances to kind of to, 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 to sit in that pocket. Um, do you have, when you're looking at teams, when you're looking at dynamics, when you look at this, are, there, are there team dynamics you're looking for? Are there red flags you're looking for? Because you're talking about a lot of this team and as a leader, but when you're formulating teams and like that, what do you, what are you really looking for for a good team? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's a couple parts to this. So mm -hmm. I think the one of the biggest thing is preparation. So I think um, we've all heard that adage of, you know, forming, norming, storming, and then performing. And that's so true because I've been brought into expeditions at the last minute, maybe three weeks beforehand, where um, you know you have to learn the team dynamics. You have to learn what has been planned, what hasn't been planned, versus I've been in expeditions where we had eight month lead up time to prepare for everything, to you know iron out those um, any personality clashes. And so preparation is key to it. And I think if you, I, I would almost have a hypothesis that with enough lead time, you have enough time before you're in the austere um, environment, before you're on that X to actually address kinks ahead of time. Um, that being said, you know, there's there's crews, crews and expeditions that have really awesome rapport with that we still talk every day to this, you know, they're like family. Um, and it's just that, you know, everyone is mission driven. They they're very smart, they're very accomplished. Um, they want to get work done, but they're just fun to be around. They're, you know, they have the same goals that you do. You all have the same um, shared mental model of what your mission looks like. And so if you're giving me the luxury of, you know, picking who my crew is, it's going to be those people who are hard workers, um, who are in it for, love, for the love of the game, um, but also want to have a little bit of fun while they're in this incredible environment. That's awesome. 
competent people that you like is a very important thing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's a lot more succinct way of putting it. No, it's wonderful. That is, this is, this is great. And, and is there anything you talk about? Like, like if you give me enough time, I can hammer through enough people and I can, we can figure this out. And you're talking about team formation. Cause some people, I know it's typical common for you, but like you're talking about, uh, you're talking about the storming, forming, norming, uh, uh, forming teams, storming teams, which causes the ruckus. Um, and then, uh, they normalize out and then they perform over time, right? That's a kind of the phases of a team as you yeah. move through something. Um, I just want to touch on, because some people may not know that, um, and I want to just touch on it. And I want to say in terms of the uh, storming to norming part of the actual connections, do you have any like uh, leadership tactics or exercises or bonding activities or ways to kind of work through to make a co more cohesive team? Yeah, I'm, I'm smiling because I think honestly the best way to kind of put all of everyone's flaws and, and fears on display is to have a stressful situation and see how you all um, react. But I mean, that's that's not ideal. And so ideally you'll have a pre-brief as well as a situation and exercise and then a debrief. And so you can reinforce what went well and you know create future, um, re reinforce those patterns of performance in the future and then also try to improve on things that didn't go so well. Um, but even just you know having a you know talking out making sure everyone feels heard making sure that you know if people have goals that they want to share them um that they are sharing them if they have fears that they are sharing them um and i think what one of the missions that i was commander of what we all did is mm -hmm. we we shared at the very beginning before going into this mission we shared our our roadmaps and our objectives for success and we, you know, we realize that, oh, hey, this is a like, this isn't, and we have to come together to make sure that we're all on the same page here. So that communication is really key. Mm. Yeah, it was, it's funny because you're smiling. Were you, was there, a, there was a certain story in your mind or an incident in your mind that came to mind when I was asking that question? And it was like, and like the never let a good crisis go to waste in the terms of like letting a situation like, so when you see, I don't want to say catastrophe, but when you see a, a, a the situation pop up, right? Are you saying, oh, this is a good chance to test my team? Is that, do you, is there a certain situation you can talk about that and the lessons you learn from a, from a yeah. specific? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, now that you mention it. So, um, one of the parts um, that you may have mentioned in my bio is I'm the lead instructor of the IIAS. Um, operational space medicine course. And basically in this course, we take medical lay folks. So people who don't necessarily have a medical background and we teach them to be a space medical MacGyver. So we teach them principles of austere environment medicine. We te teach them principles of assessment, recognition, um, triage and treatment. And so some of these people, like in one instance, we had a second year medical student, which is awesome. In other instances, we had software developers and, um, you know, military pilots. So people who are very, very driven and smart, but no medical background whatsoever. And, um, you know, we would take them through these drills and we would start with a simple trauma and then, you know, up the game a little bit to a multi-trauma, polytrauma, and then do a night scenario and then a mass casualty. And I'm laughing because, you know, these people really rose to the occasion. Um, you know, we would throw everything at them and stress them out and they would really get into the scenario. And then we, when we debrief, you know, at the end of the day, they did what they had to do. And so kind of pushing them to their limits um, while also keeping um, in mind where the limit is. Do you do you uh, do you get some sort of um, uh, pleasure from watching people stress out and then overcome those fears and and grow? Um, is there? Uh, I, I, yeah, I'm not, feeling... 
not sadism. Um, not I'm not necessarily sadism, but like there's a there's a positive. I, I was trying, by the way, I was trying to avoid the term sadism. Um, <laughs> and, and in my mind, it was like, okay, don't say that. But around like the the pleasure from seeing people overcome their fears and then grow from those the things that they've overcome. Yeah, absolutely. There's yeah. so much pride. There's so much pride um, in seeing people who you know have this trepidation and then they get yeah. into this scenario that's testing their limits and that's true of the, the medical course um the space medicine course it's true of any of the um, astronautics courses um, that we do with the international institute for astronautical sciences so AAS, you know we're we're testing spacesuits in in zero g we're testing spacesuits in the water and we're yeah. testing you know we're creating underwater research labs and you know um most of the most of the time, you know, by the time you've done several of these courses, you know where your comfort limit is and you're here because you want more. But the first time you meet, you know, a rookie who's just gone through ground school and you're just watching them, you know, build things up, you're there to build them up, but you're also there yeah. to help them, you know, get over the the trepidations and fears. And when you watch them graduate, you're like, yes, you did it. You're amazing. Welcome. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's, it's immense pride at that growth. And you, you know, you see that anytime you're mentoring someone and it's just like, holy cow, I am privileged enough to watch you rise to the occasion. That's awesome. That's cool. And that's when they, that's what I guess I was the word I was looking for is a sense of pride that you get from watching someone grow and overcome their fears and feeling like you had a part of that. They did it, but you kind of you were you were in the ecosystem that helped them help them grow, which is really yeah, cool. Exactly. I love it. I love it. And um, I mean, so those situations where it, it, it's it, it it it's those freak out moments do you do you have ways of keeping your cool under the pressure is there ways when everything's going wrong there's the red lights flashing the loud noises are happening like is there a way like how do you how do you keep centered and be able to kind of keep a level head as you move through those situations yeah that's a great question because i'm smiling because one thing i've left out is you know sometimes despite our best efforts we don't have time to train it as a team and you know we have to deal with things as they come in. And 90% um, of my practice as a physician is in rural emergency rooms. Uh, and because I, um, you know, work in so many different sites, I'm in a different city every weekend. Um, I don't have time to net. Uh, I don't have the luxury of having built rapport with the nursing team. And so if something like a cardiac arrest comes in, it's like, okay, where all systems go. Uh, and then, you know, we have to trust in our training. We have to trust in our teammates training that they know what to do. Um, but that being said, when things hit the fan, there's so many different ways to center yourself. Um, and so for me, when a polytrauma comes in, you just go back to your basic instincts. And, you know, in, in the traditional trauma um, teaching, it's ABC, airway breathing circulation, right? And you're, you know, there's various um, paradigms of that model, um, you know, in the military, I think they use P-March or something like that. But it's always, you know, this is the order of operations. This is what you have to secure first before you can go on to the next thing. In the piloting world, it's aviate, navigate, communicate, which you can argue is also applicable to um, the, you know, uh, running a code in medicine. You have to you have to do what you have to do to keep the patient alive. You have to do what you have to do to keep your plane afloat. And then you have to figure out where you're going to next. And then you communicate that to everyone. Um, and maybe some of those things are happening in tandem. Um, you know, and it's sometimes it's as simple as what my dad has, has told me when I was growing up is stop, take a breath, and then think, right? So there's so many ways. And um, there's all these tools you have at your, at your disposal, whether you're in medicine or aviation or just in life. And you just you always have more time to think and act than you actually um, may perceive. 
that is a, a great and powerful lesson. You always have more time than you think you have in the moment, because right? that's it. But it, but that falling back on that frameworks on those patterns on those on those situations is like okay, breathe. What's my training? What's my acronym that I need to use in the moment? Right? How do I what do I need to pull out of the situation? I mean, those things are, are critical because some people, you know, um, you know, one of the challenging bits if you if you're in a situation where you're working with people that your life's on the line, you don't want someone's going to freak out and just run away or they're going to, you know, there's something's going to happen when they snap. And so knowing that people can perform well under pressure and, how, and they can fall in those situations, I think is, in, is invaluable knowing how to actually do it. Cause um, I think part of this is there's a certain amount of confidence that I think you have um, because you've been in so many of these situations. You're like, okay, I got it. I know I'm going to, I'm going to figure it out. I'm just going to get it. And I think when people haven't been tested like that, they don't, they don't know. And so they don't have that experience. They don't have that confidence in themselves to be able to take, you know, to, to sit in those situations uncomfortably. That's why when I was talking about, like, for some reason, whenever I bring up anything going completely wrong, you smile. And I just, I just noticed, I just noticed in this conversation that every time we go into a situation where everything's wrong, everything's on fire, you're like, you're like, it's all good. It's all good. I got it. Like, and so you I have I, to, right? Because, <laughs> you know, especially in COVID times, you know, it's not just COVID, it's all of healthcare that's on fire. And so yeah. even in these rural sites, you know, I'm seeing way more volume than I ever would. I'm seeing way more sick patients. You know, there, I just came off 72 hours um, this past weekend where it was actually nonstop for the 72 hours. And it's like, okay, well, this is the order of operations. This is the way it goes. This is the resources we have. And, you know, if we have to triage the order in which things are done, so be it. But at the end of the day, we're going to make sure everyone gets out alive. We're going to make sure that everyone is still staying afloat. Um, and then, you know, at the end of the day, at some point, you're going to get a reprieve at some point. So there will be, you know, you're always going to be okay. That's it's 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 fine. It's fine. It's fine. Seventy-two hours or seventy-two hours in in a, in a hospital? Is that what you're saying? Doing some sort of triage work, or is that what? Yeah. So when you work rural, um, it's a little bit different than working in a tertiary um, uh, major healthcare center. So if you're in a big city, you'll typically work eight hours at a time. Um, so when you're working rurally, you'll actually typically take on the entire weekend at a time. So you know, in because I work everywhere, I've taken on everything from eight-hour shifts to one week of call at a time. And you know, sometimes it's fine. Sometimes you, you know, you'll sleep through the night. Sometimes you're going nonstop for, you know, the better part of 60, 70 hours. Um, and that's, you know, you know, you just focus on that next thing, right? That's kind of one of the principles of resilience is breaking things down. What needs to be done next? How prepared am I for this scenario? If the best case happens, if the worst case happens, and you know, it's it, if you love that kind of thing, it's actually a lot of fun. Yeah. It's... <laughs> Uh, I think is incredible, and also that the ability to endure and that that resilience that you're talking about. I mean, you touched on a couple very interesting kind of cornerstone mindset pieces and, and mentality, and, and you know the resilience, um, being able to be comfortable under pressure, um, being able to, to work well with other team members. Um, uh, if you were to like, if there was a a, a young, uh, let's say a young female um, who wanted to see a path like yours. And you you wanted to teach her some some life lessons and some skills and things like that that probably aren't taught in school, you know what would be the things that you think would be important um, for a, a a young explorer uh, to really get under their belt and be able to have as a mindset or a skill set to be able to achieve as much as you've been able to do. That's a that's a great question. Um, I think the number one thing is just aim to be the hardest working person of anyone you know. 
um, just because a work ethic is free. It's not something you're born with or not. It's something you can work to develop. And it's, you know, something to aspire to, to be the hardest working person in a room. Um, and then, you know, for females or underrepresented groups in particular, I would say, you know, act like you belong there because you do and don't let anyone tell you otherwise because I think that's you know been a huge part of why maybe we see underrepresentation in some of the fields we've been talking about and then in a broader term for anyone who's setting out you know question ask questions question everything you know say why does this have to be like this um you know how can it be better how can I make it better um and then you know what would it be like if it was it was better you know what is my role in making this better you know take that power back and you know, apply your, your smart brains towards solving hard problems. That's awesome. And I mean, you look at those, I mean, those amazing things, the hardest working thing, which will get you to, to accomplish a lot, then the questioning, which will expand what's possible, you know, and then, you know, that sense of just feeling comfortable. I've always stepped in, I've stepped into new professions, not as nearly as many as you have, but I've stepped in situations where I felt like a fraud going into one situation. I'm like, what am I even doing here? This doesn't make sense. Like, cause I've, I've had large jumps from one, one occupation, being a serial entrepreneur, from one thing not to like, I feel like a fraud. And then one day I look back and I'm like, oh wow, I'm a seasoned veteran, you know? And then I look back yeah. and I'm like, oh wow, how did that happen? And there's this weird thing of this um, imposter syndrome that happens in the beginning. And then until you finally like look back and at some point, it just becomes everyday kind of activities, um, which I, I think there's a very valuable lesson of that being, uh, doing it before you're comfortable, right? And you're talking about being comfortable. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. so true. And so, you know, every single one of us feels that imposter syndrome, like, hey, I'm not good enough to be there, you know, especially the first day of medical school, when you're, you're there, you're like, okay, there's been a mistake. How did I get in? Because everyone's incredible, right? You're, you know, in medical school these days, you're, you know, your colleagues can be Olympic athletes, or they may have won Shark Tank. And, you know, th those are real examples that we see in Canadian medical schools. Um, but, you know, on, on the flip side, it's sort of like, um, it, Coming back to this imposter syndrome, I was once giving a keynote and I once I asked the room of people and, you know, they were all very accomplished. They were all heads of science centers from across the country. I said, who here has never felt the imposter syndrome? Nobody raised their hand. Everyone feels it. So the question is, how do we deal with it? And, you know, there's there's two approaches. And I think the first one is one that you touched on is saying, you know, well, someone believed in me enough to put me here. So I guess I'm here now, better make the most of it. And that, that's an approach that I've taken lots because I've been asked to do really amazing things um, with respect to space medicine research. And it's like, but there's so many better people, but okay, I guess it's me now. Um, and then the other part of it is just, you know, dissecting those feelings um, and, you know, saying, okay, well, why am I feeling this way? You know, what is that feeling? Do I feel like I'm not smart enough? Okay, why? Is it because I don't study enough? You know, is it true? Okay, then I'll just study more. Um, if it's not true, well, then that voice needs to go away and I'll just move on. And um, so I think analyzing those feelings can also be helpful. That's awesome. And that, I mean, that, that the analyzing the feelings is incredible because you start looking at it, you go, okay, is it something I need to change? Is it something I can do to change it? If not, uh, I'm just going to have to, I'm going to let go of that. I'm just going to carry on with what I got going on with myself, which is I'm incredible. And that, that um, ability to switch between those two roles, that ability to switch from the, the explorer that's running uh, into the wilds or into the forest or where, wherever you might be exploring to the planner, the person who's laying down the tracks, the person who's organizing, the person who's keeping things to like, okay, I'm going to come up with my spreadsheets and my data analysis and my charts and they, in that mode and then switching gears into the explore mode. They're, they're two very different mindsets to be in. Do you have um, 
do you have a pattern? Is it is it a, a daily, a weekly, a monthly, a yearly cadence for goal setting, for planning, for things? What does what does that look like for you? Yeah, it's that's a great question. Um, there's this principle I use. It's called a rate of scan, and it's something that I picked up when I was flying, skydiving, diving. And the idea is you want to maintain the situational awareness. And so you know when you're piloting a plane, you're always looking at the world around you, you're looking at your instrument panel, um, and you're also looking at your map. And the idea is you wanna see where you are in relation to where you've been and what's your progress to get there. And it's the exact same concept if you're driving a car, you're constantly looking ahead of you, um, you're looking in the rear view mirror, you're looking at your dashboard and your gas tank. Um, and it's the same thing with goals. You know, you can create your immediate term, uh, short term, intermediate term, long term goals. And the idea is you don't just write it once and forget about them. You're also always, mm -hmm. you know, constantly scanning between them saying, okay, where did I start out? Where am I now? And what's my progress to where I want to be? Um, and then the other part of that is, you know, has anything changed? Have my values changed? Are my goals not as important to me? Um, or, you know, is it more important than ever? Um, so just kind of always um, maintaining that, that situational awareness to um, have the presence of mind to keep that immediate term view as well as the long-term focus um, has mm. really helped me out. And is that something that you do daily or weekly? Or could you, were you talking about, it, it makes sense. You have a, where you want to go, where you're at now, where you've been, you're looking through that and you're saying, okay, am I still in alignment with where I want to go? The congruencies, right? That, and you're talking about looking at it frequently. Like, I mean, is that, it, I'm curious about that habit. Like, what is the trigger for this? I roll out of bed, I look at my goals, I hit the ground running, ready, set, go. Or Sunday, I sit my coffee in my bed while I pet my cat and I look at my goals on a giant whiteboard. What does that look like for you? Yeah, I am laughing because I'm, I'm still playing around with this formula because the most recent thing I've started to do is say, okay, how, how you know, diligent can I be about this? And I actually started uh -huh. up a spreadsheet, of course, um, to look at, you know, what are what's on my ra radar with you know respect to my pilot's license with respect to what i'm getting done um you know in terms of my fitness goals in terms of learning russian you know and how much time am i dedicating to that every single day um and then that actually turned out to be quite rigid you know actually putting down the exact minute amount was sort of like what's the point like i would rather just say i dedicated time to russian today and that was a good day rather than saying i did 20 minutes of russian and um, so i'm still playing around with that formula um, and then there's mm -hmm. also certain adjunct tools because I have so many different schedules and so many different worlds. Um, every single night before I go to bed, I have to look at both of my calendars. Um, and then also when I wake up and just make sure I'm aware of what the day is going to hold. Um, and then also to-do lists, just keeping both a written and a digital to-do list of, you know, what needs to be done today, what needs to be done this week. So um, the summary is, you know, a lot of planning. So um, tracking spreadsheets, to-do lists, calendars. That's fantastic. And thank you for elaborating on that. That's very helpful and it helps me kind of wrap my mind around because you're someone that's, you've done a bunch of amazing shit. Okay. And a lot of people look at you like, how do you do it? Right. And part of the thing is, is the, is the being able to set a plan for it. And then another one is being able to work the plan and they're not the same skill set. Some people can just go right. And they just go into a direction and they're off in the woods and they get lost. And sometimes they make it out and sometimes they die. Right. And other people make giant plans. They make mountains out of molehills. And then they're just sitting there. They have all these spreadsheets, but they never take action. And so I'm truly trying to understand in terms of your ability to accomplish as much as you've done. It's a, it's a, it's a mindset and a skill set along with the habits that kind of organize what you've been able to do and make these things happen. And so I'm, as to, if you, uh, you know, thank you for entertaining me on these questions. Cause I'm trying to, you know, understand how you've been able to go along this journey from the inspiration along the ways that what are those what are those daily habit patterns that keep you 
that keep you moving along. Um, do you so on that note though i yeah. think there's two two important distinctions that need to be made because for me yeah. it's not sort of like i'm going to plan this out then i'll do it for me it's more that impatience that i'm not doing as much as i think i can be doing let's put the metrics behind this so that's kind of i would say the driver to why i started that spreadsheet uh -huh. um it's sort of like okay come on i need to these are the things that need to be done this year right the pilot yeah. license I want to have done this year right so that's you know why i started tracking how much time i'm dedicating to that um, and then the other part of it is, you know, we've talked simply about me and my approach this hour, but the other mm -hmm. part of it is I would not be where I am without having incredible teams who help mm -hmm. me out every single day, whether it's, you know, my family who's incredibly supportive, whether it's the support staff in the hospital who make sure they're like, hey, doctor, you've been going straight for 14 hours. Have you eaten or drank? Go eat or drink, right? Um, or, you know, the teams who make the Neptune expedition happen. Like it's it's none of that is simply me in isolation. It's also being lucky enough to have those catalysts in place. A hundred percent. Your environment is so important and so important that the ecosystem of the people to be around you and be able to make those things happen. That, that is, is you I mean, again, what we were, we, I mean, you didn't build the rocket, you know, you just, you're just flying it, you know? <laughs> so it's, it's still incredible to, to look at as a, as a, as an accomplishment of being able to do those things, because it's still, I mean, you could have all those elements and still be in a struggling situation where you're given everything and you still take it for granted. What I'm also curious about, you have this hunger, right? You, you said this again, like, you're like, I still feel like I'm not doing enough. Right, which makes me go, I feel like I've done some stuff. And I look around and go, no, I look at it. So what's the hunger? Like, where's the, like, where does this hunger come from? Like, what you like, what's with the, um, I feel like I haven't done enough. I need to track my 20 minutes of Russian on top of everything else that I'm doing. Like, what, what does the genesis from that come from? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, the coolest part about setting these, these goals and paths for yourself as a kid, and then realizing that as an adult, I get to do all of this and so much more that is an incredible feeling like, holy cow, I get to work in space and space medicine and medicine and, you know, develop technology and write research papers. Like I never imagined I would get to do all of that. So that's, that's part of that, that hunger. Um, and then the other part of that is, you know, when you are able to land amongst people who are just like you equally driven, you know, and you're inspired by everything they do within their own fields. You're like, how are you doing so much? I need to do more with, with my life. <laughs> Um, and then, you know, there's, there's also a lot of things that, you know, get me fired up and, you know, there's, there's a couple of speeches out there that just, I love. And one of them is the, um, Gene Krantz flight director speech, um, you know, after the Apollo one, um, uh, fire that claimed the lives of Grissom, White and Chaffee. And, you know, just talking about accountability, um, you know, talking about how anything that happens, the buck stops with you, um, Another one, you know, a friend of mine who's in the special operations world is, I think, I think it's from the Dead Poets Society. He said, it's, you know, got to do more, be more, you know, and on days, you know, when it's sort of like, hey, the grind isn't enough. It's like, no, I got to do more, be more. And then the one I've started listening to most recently, uh, I think a lot of your listeners will really relate to mm -hmm. when I'm at the gym working out. It's, it's that Rocky, that speech that Stallone gives to his son. And it's sort of Ooh. like... It's so good. It's, you know, it's, he says, he's like, you want to get what you're worth then go get what you're worth, but you know, don't blame it on him or her or anybody cowards do that. And that ain't you, you know, that is so true. You know, it's, it gets you fired up and it tells you no one's going to drag you up. No one's going to drag you up, but you, you have to bring you, yourself up. 
Uh, I love that. That is my that is my get your butt out of bed. It's time to make you know big stuff happen. Let's go, let's go, let's go. And that, but you're right because that is because like we 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 everybody can slip into the victim mode or I'm doing enough mode or I'm doing those types of things. But like I felt like that came from Stallone's soul. Like and he came out like and said that because it was. I mean, you feel that, and 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 you're right that those items of inspiration is is like sources like it's like an engine that helps you kind of get to where you want to go um and and it's kind of cool to see it's actually cool to me to see that you're listening to the same things that i'm listening to i'm sure millions of other people are listening to the same type of thing but it's cool to see that we we all kind of pull on the same sources to to get to get us going and, and because we all we all everybody needs that whether it's um uh 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 you know uh 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 someone going into space or uh, a mom of 10 kids, which I can't imagine what that life's like, how challenging that is. And you know, I can't God bless her. like I, my grandma I had 13 kids. Yeah. It's like, Oh my God, how'd you do it? Are you, you deserve several medals. I good job. Yeah. Um, and so um, it, the inspiration is great. And you, you're talking about these things about making these plans and um, you know, being supported. Is there um, for all the things that you've done and all the places you've been to and, all the all the the goals that you have do you have like a a holy grail or do you have like a flag in the top of the mountain is a, a place that like that is like a, the 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 big thing you're trying to accomplish oh gosh yeah i would say um the personal would be would be getting to space and then the you know the legacy that i'd like to leave is in remote and austere environment medicine. So, you know, contributing to the foundations of space medicine on the moon, Mars and beyond, you know, helping keep future astronauts safe for the long term. You know, maybe there's going to be the first hospital in Europa somewhere um, in the deep solar system. That would be cool. But also bringing those benefits back to Earth because, you know, we were talking about how remote you can be on this planet and, mm. you know, still be on this planet. And it's crazy to me that because it takes almost 17 hours to safely decompress from the Aquarius reef phase, you can actually get to Earth quicker from the International Space Station than you can from 60 feet underwater. You know, that's crazy. There's, you know, there's a Chilean settlement um, outside of um, Antarctica. It's called the King, King George Island. And it is so remote that anyone over the age of six living there has to have their appendix out because they're so far from medical care. Right. And so, you know, to to be able to contribute to helping keeping those populations um, with the standard of care, you know, whether it's in Antarctica, whether it's on Mars, that would be my legacy that I'm aspiring towards. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah, because there's the there's the personal satisfaction, right? There's the personal joy, which is floating in space, flying in space. And I just Woo! Get, yeah, give me some of that. That sounds incredible. Then the, the impact, the legacy, the contribution, right? Because they, they don't have to be one and the exact same thing. And I could see how both would be um, so impactful. And I mean, that's a that's a wonderful mission um, and vision that you have. Is there, what's the dragon? What's the thing that is so difficult to overcome? You don't know if you're able to do it and you feel like you might need to die, re be reborn or transform who you are to get to where you need to go. I haven't found it yet. I mean, for me, it's not, I can't do this. It's more like, okay, well, when are you going to be able to prioritize this and, you know, give this all, all the, you know, it, it merits, you know, if, if I'm going to go to set out to climb Everest, then, you know, that means that I have to make a plan to train for Everest. They need to put the resources, the money and the team there. 
um, that's the only thing that would be stopping me from climbing Everest. And you know, what is my Everest? Um, you know, right now it's it's, it's space. But I would say that um, you know, for for anything that I'm trying to overcome, it's where am I going to put my resources, my time, and my will? Mm. That's awesome. Um, it's it's interesting because on the the this Heroes Journey podcast, I like to ask certain questions of patterns and behaviors and stuff like that. On um, you know the Holy Grail and and um, I've never heard someone say that they they haven't found the dragon. That's the first time I've I've heard that <laughs> um, in like a hundred plus podcasts here of people saying, I I doesn't exist. I just if I have the time, I'll make it happen, which is awesome and says a lot to your ability to kind of be able to go past these things. And, and you don't, you don't look at them as dragons. You more look at them as as it just takes time and resources and energies to, to sort out the problems. And anything is quite achievable. Um, so I. I, I love it, um, and this has been incredible. Um, with you know, with all of that being said, um, is there is there anything else you'd like to let people know about before they tell them tell them how to get a hold of you? Um, no, I'm just curious to see where people end up from your your podcast. Where are they starting out from? You know, what are what is what are they? You know, what are their dragons to slay? I'd love to hear about it. So, yeah, thank you so much for for this incredible conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a great thing. I mean, uh, for the people that listen to it, please post in the comments in the different places below on, you know, you know, what is your mission and what is your dragon? Where are you going? And, you know, what inspiration did you get from this um, and lessons taken away? Because there's a lot of amazing insights in here. And, um, um, Doctor, this has been wonderful. Um, it's been amazing. Um, if people want to find more about you, uh, look up some of the amazing stuff that you're up to, how do they how do they do that? Yeah, great. You can um, find me on my website, shaunapandia.com. You can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, um, Shauna Pandia. Just Google <laughs> Google that and it's pretty much the same um, everywhere. And so um, looking forward to connecting. Awesome. Have a blessed and beautiful day. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for all the work that you do. And I will see you on the other side. Thank you so much for having me. Take care now. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Heroes of Reality podcast. Check out heroesofreality.com for more episodes. While you're there, you can also take the Heroes quiz to find out what kind of hero you are. Or if you have a great story and want to be on the podcast, tell us why your hero's journey will inspire others. Thank you for listening. See you on the other side.